I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 145. Today in the show, I'm joined by Illinois bow hunters Frank Clark and Clinton Fawcett to talk mature buck hunting strategies and big Illinois whitetails. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we're joined by two serious big buck hunters, Frank Clark and Clinton Fawcett. And these guys hunt and film together for bowhunting.com's Bowhunt or Die web show and consistently put down mature whitetails and terrific footage. I've been a big fan of their work and I've actually gotten to know them over the years and they're just great guys. So today I wanted to have them on the show to discuss exactly how they approach their whitetail seasons, how they have so much success, and I wanted to try to pry a couple good stories out of the two as well. So that's the plan today and since scheduling issues prevented my trusty co-host Dan from joining me, we're going to move things right along. That said, before we bring Clinton and Frank on with us, we've got another great Sitka story to share with you today from Stefan Caprelletti, who last week shared one of his best whitetail stories. And today, with spring gobblers on many of our minds, he's back with a turkey hunting tale. And you know, by the time we cut to the top of the mountain, it actually started raining. Um, so we're, we're to the point where we just climbed up to the top. We're, we're getting sweaty. Now we're getting rained on. Um, and I just remember looking over at Matt and just smiling and just laughing, like, you know, what are we doing out here? And a break in the storm happened to come through. I don't know what we hit a pocket where the rain just stopped for just a moment. And boom, we heard this bird go off in the distance and he was actually not too far away down the logging road from us. So I was like, Hey, let's, let's make a move on this bird. Let's see what happens. Um, you know, if it keeps raining like it is, you know, if we can't, you know, get close to him, you know, we'll probably call it a day. But this bird just keeps hammering, hammering. I start getting on the call, and I'm throwing him everything I got with the box call, mouth call, you name it. And uh, I set up a little bit behind Matt. I was actually trying to get him the bird, and I wanted him to, to get his first big spring gobbler. And this bird's coming in. He's coming in. 
Um, unfortunately for Matt, he actually dropped down towards me closer, and I ended up taking a 35-yard shot on him and, and dropping him. So, boom, right away, our morning went from miserable, you know, we're ready to call it quits, to, hey, we have a public land spring, spring gobbler on the ground. So we're as excited as can be. You know, we're, we're tagging the bird. We're just reminiscing on the hunt. And no sooner did I get the be- the, the bird tagged, uh, we hear another bird, another two birds actually sound off below us. And uh, I looked at him. I said, time to get you a bird. And we ran down. We, we, you know, we got in a position quick. I hopped on the call again. And just like my bird, this bird's hot. He's hammering. He's coming right for us. And I'd say about 15 minutes after I dropped my bird, we had a uh, Matt got his first spring bird there and we both were walking out of the woods there with a spring gobbler. On this hunt, Stefan was wearing a Sitka Ascent jacket and pants. And if you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now let's get this show kicked off. All right, with us now on the podcast is Frank Clark and Clinton Fawcett. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Glad you have us on there. Thank you for having us, Mark. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to chat. It has been a while since I've got to chat with both of you at the same time. You know, we met a number of years ago through our through our friend Josh back in Illinois. But um, how long have you guys been been hunting together? Because it seems like that's been a long term thing. Is that right, uh, Clinton? Yes, I we were taught Frank and I was talking about this earlier today. I think we've been filming. This will be our tenth or 11th year we filmed the first year together and tried to get on tse bow madness when drury's had it or whatever it was the contest they had and then we filmed for white knuckle for two years after that and i think this is going to be our seventh year with bow hunter die wow and it's been a long time yeah it sounds like it now when you when you two are hunting together and filming together is that always an easy thing? Because I know when some guys hunt and film together a lot, they can sometimes nearly kill each other. Has that ever happened to you guys? I'll let Frank answer that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it happens every year. You have a, you know, he'll have something going on or I'll have something going on, and, you, you know, you're trying to get schedules worked out and, you know, family stuff and sports and, I mean, it just gets to the point where sometimes you got to go by yourself, but, you know, just that's just part of it, I guess. Yeah. It, it can definitely become a second marriage at times, that's for sure. <laughs> Who, who's the husband? Who's the wife? <laughs> well, that just depends. I think we is. know that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So uh, how did your guys' season go this far? I guess, uh, Clinton, we'll start with you. I, we we had a great season. Um, we we killed deer on the same day. Uh, I, I killed a real nice eight point, and uh, I had to, we had a pretty hit or miss late season with it being cold. But you know the weather just wasn't great for us. Um, but you know overall uh, it was pretty good. We've been laying off the does because we don't you know try to let the deer population get back. Um, but you know I. I I th- I thought we had a pretty good season for sure. So that day you guys both killed in the same time. That if I remember right, Frank, did you kill first and then and then Clinton you killed later that day, is that right? Yeah, I killed in the morning and then uh once we got photos done and uh got everything, 
you know, taken care of. And uh, we were running late like normal to go out that afternoon. And then uh, we just went to a spot that we've actually never really hunted at all, I mean, in the last couple of years. And uh, we had another nice buck come in that morning, that night. Wow. So how did, how did it start that morning for you? Um, we went to a spot that I had an encounter with a big buck uh, last the year before on about the same day. It was kind of the same, you know, the weather was about the same and everything. So we, uh, we slid into that stand and, uh, just hit the horns together and he, he, uh, he came in. It was actually a deer that I'd passed the year before out of the same tree. Uh, he was three and then, then this year he was four and he came into like 21 yards. Wow. Do you guys see that happen very often where you see a buck do something very nearly the same, almost at the same time, you know, one year after another. Have you guys seen that happen before? It seems like since we started paying more attention to it, yes. Well, I was pretty sure, we were both pretty sure we were going to kill that deer down there. Um, we'd actually been waiting on him to show back up all summer, and we thought he was going to blow into a bigger deer than what he did. Um, he'd only put on about 10 inches maybe from three to four, which is kind of, you know, uh, you know, that usually doesn't happen. Usually you get a lot bigger jump around here on your ear like that. But anyway, he, uh, we were waiting on him to show back up and he was actually right underneath our nose the whole time. I've been getting pictures of him all summer. I just didn't realize it was the same deer because he hadn't blown up quite what I thought he was going to. And, but, but we had both talked a lot about, we knew we were going to be able to get on that deer down there in that bottom. I mean, he just, that's where he was last year a lot. And it, he was, once he moved, you know, got his velvet off and the rut started and he got moved down in there where he'd been last year at the same time. It was, I was pretty sure it was going to happen. So was it just because of the observations from the year before or did you start getting, you know, did you start seeing him again or getting pictures or something that, you know, this past season that made you think, okay, now it is happening. We had got, we had got a lot of pictures of him down in there and we'd seen, and I had a lot of pictures of him there the year before. And that was actually, Frank, that was the first time we went down in there, wasn't it? That was that was the first day we'd hunted that stand this year, yeah. Interesting. Yep. How long have you guys been? How long have you guys been doing this targeting? You know, mature bucks like this. Um, has this been a long, long, long time? I mean, you said you've been filming ten years or so. Um, when did you guys make that jump to not just shooting any buck, but these bigger, older bucks? Frank, I guess if you want to take that. Um. Pretty much when we started uh, filming, we tried to go. You know, four. Sometimes you kill a three-year-old uh, that's bigger or looks bigger than you know than when he gets on the ground. You know he's three, but we pretty much have targeted four-year-olds since you know the last probably seven or eight years. Um, but like truthfully, like Clinton, we were talking about this deer that we killed. I killed early, you know, in the, in that bottom. We started really patterning in the does when their does are starting to come in heat more than we did the bucks. Like certain farms, the does come in earlier. It seems like every year. And truthfully, we hunt certain farms, you know, according to the does of when they came in the year before. Hmm. So your your time in farms based on past past observations of does coming to heat. Then you're saying, yeah, like on the rut. Like if if you start really seeing your bucks chasing does, it seems like to us in a week window. It seems like the next year within that week window, they're going to be on that farm. It seems like they're they come in heat again in the, within a week. Hmm. That makes sense. And are you seeing that even despite weather changes and stuff like that, still seems to be relatively consistent? 
Yeah, it, it is here at the house. It's, I mean, the, the farm at the house is a mile and a quarter long. It, it's, it's fairly narrow, but we've got a long, it, it's a long farm. And the north end of the farm where we've killed several nice deer, it is early right off the bat every year. And down here where I'm sitting right now on the south end of the farm, it is late. It's two weeks later. The prime time of the rut down here on this end of the farm is always late. And you can get pictures of the deer a mile and a half to the north. And then as the season, as the rut continues down here on the south end of the farm, um, it's always later. You have any idea why that might be? No, it's confusing to me because I listen to everything. I mean, you you know how I am. I listen to everything on the internet. I sit in my office. (laughs) I listen to all the podcasts. I listen to everything Marjorie has ever wrote or said. I listen to everything Grant Woods talks about. And and I, I understand everyone's theories but i i can't promise you this the 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 north end of our farm is the last week october religiously every single year my mother and father-in-law's farm is sometimes even earlier than that it can be closer towards the 20th early 20th up there and i can promise you one thing on the south on the very south end of this farm it is the week before shotgun season every year wow that's and I got pictures to prove it, and the deer moved from the north down to the south. And Frank's been telling me that for years, and that's that's how we that's kind of how we hunt it. We don't ever hunt here until those weeks. We kind of just migrate, you know, we migrate ourselves. So do you? And Josh's farm's early too. You know, Josh's farm's the same way where you hunted, Mark. That's weird. Frank can tell you about that. He knows a lot about that over there. Do you guys fo- focus then primarily just on those? I mean. I guess I'm curious to hear from the beginning. How much emphasis do you put on the beginning of the season? Um, early season, is that something you guys are really focused on, or do you kind of save up your time until that, you know, that late October time period when it starts kicking in in that one part of the farm? Frank? Um, the first week of October is all based on our cameras. Uh, we just go by what bucks are, try, are still moving in the daylight and what bucks that we're getting pictures of. Um, we really don't you know, go into the timber most of the time in the first week of October. We just hunt edges and then, like, in, on food. And just anywhere that we're kind of getting, you know, seeing some scrapes and we're getting pictures of bucks. I mean, we've killed Clint killed a buck October 1st, two years ago. And then this year he shot one and hit it in the shoulder October 1st. It's just we had we knew them bucks were there by the cameras. So that's how we usually hunt the first week of October and maybe the second week. And then once it, you know, gets in the middle of October, truthfully, we don't hunt that much. We just hunt, you know, maybe twice a week or three times a week, just depending on what is going on. Yeah. Our wives would, our wives would tell you we hunt a lot. (laughs) We both sitting there saying we hunt just a couple times a week. It's not very much, but they would, I'm sure if we had the Dean and Emily on the phone, they would, uh, beg to differ a little bit, but yeah, we've had, we've had great success with the cameras and hunting early season. And, you know, even in the past, before we started filming, it seemed like Frank had always had a couple good spots um, that he got on deer early. And, and, you know, even still today, those spots are still good earlier in the year than others. You know, it seems like you get those deer on those farms where you can kill them early as compared to, like, here at the house, you just can't do it. Is there, and, uh, is there something specific about those spots? Like, why do you think that's a good early season spot? Is it just the food, or what do you think? I just think they're summering there, don't you, Frank? They're they're in there kind of more out in the wide open, and then they get in there summering, and then they're kind of still there hanging out 
and uh, we're just able to to get to get on. What do you think, Frank? Um, yeah, I I mean, we always have I always have on my grandpa's farm over uh, by his house. I always have there's usually four or five good bucks a year in there in velvet, and then usually one or two stay once they lose their velvet, and then usually they're there the first two weeks of October. And then, I mean, you always have a homebody that stays right there behind his house, but it's just a narrow draw and it doesn't take, you just got to hunt it when it's right. You can't pressure the deer. I mean, it's only a 30 acre little draw of, you know, just grass and CRP and, you know, kind of just a spot that nobody else would really hunt. And I just hunt it, you know, accordingly, you just hunt it when the wind's right and when you can get in there. And you just you just watch your cameras. That's what we do. Just kind of check your cameras once a week, and hope you know if you get some daylight pictures, then you try to try to get in there and hunt them. Can you can you elaborate on that trail camera strategy in that early part of the season? You know, where are you putting those cameras? You said you're checking them once a, once a week, but where are those cameras at, and how are you getting there to check them without spooking deer? I have all my cameras on. Uh, truthfully, we either have fence gaps. Um, pinch points but mostly along the edge of the field where they're still going out and feed if you find like a lot of times along the edge of the field where the where the trees shade the, the beans stay green along the edges and you'll i mean even if you find a trail where the fence is down it seems like anywhere where it's uh where it's easy for them to get out in the field in, in a low spot in the field i mean that's where i put all my cameras i don't put anything in in the thickets or nothing don't even get in in I, everything's on the edge it's where Truthfully, you drive your truck up there and or your four-wheeler and drive up, check your, pull your car into drive on just like a farmer would. That's kind of how we do everything. We don't really like to walk in in the first, you know, the first week of October. It seems like the farmers are out checking their fields, and that's kind of the strategy we do too. We, I mean, it seems like you have better success to not bumping deer if you if you just kind of do what you normally do all summer long and don't don't change up what you do. Yeah, how much do yeah, you? I, uh, so, I, go ahead, Glenn. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I agree with that 100%. The, the more we check them out of the truck, it seems like the better off, you know, the better off we do. And it seems like if we can catch those deer early scraping at all, you know, around, you know, when they're velvet shedding, a lot of times we get them on those scrapes, especially like Frank over there on some of those summering spots. And then they just continue to stay there. And then if you can get in there and check them with your truck out the window and not leave any scent, you know, like on a fence row or something that's out away from the timber, you know, you, you know, they're there. And if you can catch the weather, right, we've had, we've had really good luck with it. Even in the middle of October, we've killed, we've, we've killed, you know, out of, out of the deer we've killed, we're not real good rut hunters, truthfully. And we've killed a lot of them pre-rut and, and early October on the camera pattern itself. How much, how much are you paying attention to like the details of those pictures? Like, you know, what direction they're coming from or stuff like that? Or is it just, is there a shooter in daylight? And if there is, then now we go in or is it more than that? I I don't, I, I pay a little bit of attention to where they're coming from, but not a ton because a lot of, a lot of times my cameras run on time-lapse also over the food plot. So they'll just be out in the middle, you know, they'll just pop out and you're not sure exactly you know, you know, he's there, but you know, the can it was a minute since last time you took a picture. So you don't know exactly what happened. Um, but you know, we, we're, we are very, we're, we are not very aggressive. I was actually just getting ready to, 
I, I just saw your podcast thing pop up with Mark on the aggressive hunting strategy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm interested. I'm, but definitely tomorrow at work, Oberlander's going to pay me a little bit of money to listen to that because <laughs> I, I, I'm interested because Frank and I are, are very non-aggressive hunters, or at least in my opinion. What do you think, Frank? We just, I think we get laid early back. season. Early season, we're not, we don't, we're not really aggressive unless, you know, we got a deer that we know we could have a chance of killing. But during the rut, I mean, truthfully, the rut is when we usually go into the bedding areas. That's, I mean, I think that's the best chance you have of killing a big buck during the rut is to be where the does are in a bedding area and just catch them bumping does back and forth. Yeah. Right. So, so elaborate a little bit for me, Clinton, on what you're saying there, though, about how you how you're not very aggressive earlier in the year or mid October. Um, are you saying that just because of where you're hunting, like because you're hunting in the edges, or are you saying that because of like how often you hunt, or to what degree do you? Well, mean that? well, we just we we just you know I feel like a lot of times we move too fast off of the deer, like the deer's there and we don't go back. Like, we'll go once, and then, well, we didn't see him, but we're scared we're going to bump him out, so we don't go back. So so we're not very aggressive in it on that aspect of it because, you know, we've got several places to hunt, right? So we've got several different bucks that we're trying to pattern. You know, we, we don't have an overall huge abundance of ground, um, you know, compared to the a- average guy. We, we've got a bunch of you know, 40 and 80 acre farms, not, not a bunch, but three or four that we hunt and the farm here at the house is a little bit bigger than that. But so with that being said, you know, Frank hunts some farms, I hunt some farms. So we're not filming when we're filming together, you know, that cuts your hunting time down in half. So we're just not very aggressive on each individual deer. And the thing we do is we check cameras. And if he's there in the daylight, we're going to try to hunt. him. And if he's not there in the daylight, we normally don't hunt him. But if we can get him close if you can get him, get him within a half hour of when it's dark, so say it's getting dark at 6 o'clock and you get pictures of him in there at 6.30 on a scrape, if you can get that cold front coming, we, we have killed several on that pattern. I mean, several, several, several deer middle of October and several deer late October on staying out, just checking cameras, not being aggressive, and watching the weather, and then, hey, it's going to happen, and we go in there, and, I mean, we, we've killed some really good deer that way and early season. You know, that's, that's kind of how I base everything that on the farms we hunt that I'm running cameras, you know, Frank runs his cameras, I run my cameras and that's how I kind of base on, Hey, we need to get in here now or Hey Frank, what do you got? We need to get over there now is, you know, they getting closer to daylight or not. Some deer just don't move in daylight. I mean, there's a big deer here at the house. I've seen him one time in five years. And that was this year is the first time I ever seen him. And he just, they just don't move in the daylight. Some of them just don't. Yeah. How much of a, you mentioned a cold front, how much of a cold front or how much of a drop in temperature do you need to see before you jump in there? And do you look at anything else? Are there any other weather conditions that make you say now's the time to go? Yeah, I, I look at everything. I Frank is a, if, if Frank's a gut feeling hunter and I am a, analyzer hunter i like to look at everything and try to figure it out go ahead Frank. He's a pressure hunter he's a pressure hunter he watches the barometric pressures all the time he's like it's going to jump two two points or it's going to jump and that's just all he does is watch it but you know i have to i have to work and he has to he has to go to the computer and check the pressure <laughs> is that true clinton well, you know, I, I'm, I happen to be the boss of 
the crew that I'm, or I'm, I'm not necessarily the boss. If any of the guys that, I, that work for me listen to this, they're going to tell you I'm not the boss. We're, we're equals. I'm just the guy that keeps the material coming, all the paperwork straight, and plans the direction that we're going to try to head as long as the whole crew is okay with it. So, yes, I do end up in my office a lot of times getting that stuff straight while Frank is. If we're on, you know, Frank, sometimes we're on the same job. Some more bill in the building, so Frank might be out doing his stuff because he's a laborer and I'm an electrician. So, and I'm in there listening to podcasts and <laughs> going out and saying, "Hey, dude, the pressure's rising. It's gonna, it's gonna be thirty point four this afternoon. We've got to get out of here. We got to go hunting." And he's like, "What? What do you? I don't feel it, bud. We're not gonna kill anything. I don't feel like we're gonna kill anything. We're not gonna kill one. Well, and a lot of times he's right. You know, you just, you, you know how it is. You just have that feeling that it's gonna happen a lot of times." Yeah. Like you just, you, you just know, like, like when Frank killed that deer this year in the morning, we just, it just had that feeling it was going to happen. And we never go back out and hunt after we shoot one. We don't ever get in a hurry like that and go back out. And it, and we, and we would never go down in the woods in the evening at four o'clock. We would never do that, but it just goes to show you that's aggressive hunting, right? I mean, mm-hmm. or, or lucky rut hunting. You know, or just Frank had a gut feeling and called said, hey, let's go ahead and go again. This is where we ought to go. So we went, and we weren't in there 15 or 20 minutes. Here you come. Did you guys make that dive because you had just been seeing that mor- that morning and the days before that it was just, like, absolutely on and you had to be out there? Or was it literally just, like, the feeling? You just had a feeling. <laughs> uh I- I was on your the rut report three days before that and said, I don't think it's going to be any good to go hunting after like Friday <laughs> because of the way the weather was. And then Frank and I went out and killed two on Saturday <laughs> on gut feelings. So, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there's your answer for my, on my app. That's funny. Would you, would you add anything on that, Frank? Uh, no, I mean, Truthfully, is the weekends are pretty much when it's when it's the rut. You have, you know, we only get so many days off work. So, yeah. truthfully, if, if there's any kind of a cold front or anything, we might not get real aggressive and go, you know, in our best spots if it's not right. But if it's the rut and it's it's the weekend and we, you know, Clint boy don't have a, a football game or you know we got time to where we can hunt and then we try to hunt. I mean, I mean, I'm not gonna. And if it's the rut, you never know. But it's to the point where you don't go to your best spot unless you, you know, you know, and you have that gut or you know that you're waiting for that, the one wet, the right wind, or, you know, just waiting for the right time to get in there. Yeah. How do you guys use the wind? Um, you know, you, if you've heard some of these past ones, maybe you have Clinton where we've talked to guys about, you know, some people always want to make sure the wind's always in their favor, a hundred percent. And then other guys say, Oh, you want to get the buck to try to have the wind in his favor. And you kind of be off the edge. How do you guys approach that? We've got we've got several spots where we've been very successful where the wind blows not 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 right at them, but it blows really close to them. Um, it, it seems like if it's not the first week of season and they're in kind of dumb mode, like the deer I killed last year, um, opening night he came with the wind at his butt the whole way. <laughs> I mean just. And, and he was a big old mature deer. I mean, he, he just, but he'd been coming in there all the time. You know, he was just kind of in dumb mode and we'd even had a deer blow and I was ready to get out of the blind. And Frank's like, ah, dude, let's just stay. We're already back here. You know, 
And then Frank's like, there he is. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And then, you know, the, the deer opening night this year did the same thing. He'd come with the wind in his butt the whole way. But it seems like after they get out of that dumb summer mode, the middle of October, and maybe they're getting a little hunting pressure, we have really good luck if we can get the wind paralleling where they're coming at. Not blowing right at them, but if you can get it blowing towards them and they can come off to the side of it, it, it's, it seems like we just see a lot more deer. If you were in a situation like that, where it's kind of tight, it's kind of risky, and you get in the tree, but then you realize the wind shifted a little bit, and now it's it's blowing right towards where you were thinking they'd be coming from. Are you guys the type that would sit it out and and hope that they come from a different direction, or do you just get down and and move? I'll let Frank answer that one. Um. It just depends on the time of year, I think, more. Um, if it's early, yeah, we uh, usually climb down and get out of there and go sit somewhere else. Um, if it's early enough or we just go back to the truck and go home. Um, but if it's in the rut, I think, you know, there's more of a chance of a buck coming from anywhere cruising. Um, but so that's that's pretty much how, how we, we do it. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of going back and forth, I guess. But early season, we definitely do not want to – mess anything up like the first week October when you know you have a, a good deer in an area that you can kill him if everything's right. Yeah. Yeah. What, speaking of wind and stuff, what do you guys do from a scent control perspective, Frank? Um, do you guys obsess over that or, or what's your take? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we do the best we can, especially early season. Um, you really, you know, when you're only hunting the evenings pretty much, you know, you can take better, better care of your clothes a little you know you can wash them you know more or you can you know make sure you put them in your ozone bag more often but when like when the when the rut is on and you're hunting morning to night when you have you know three or four days off or you take some days off work i think you we lack you know we lack on the scent control a little bit but i mean with the products they have now and the sprays i mean we have dead down wind and we have all of our you know the stuff we use and i think it Nothing is a hundred percent, but stuff does help. Yeah. Would you would you add anything, Clinton? No. No, I mean some I mean, dude, sometimes we just don't ever hunt with the wind being wrong because we'll go straight from work straight to the tree. And you know, you got your 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 clothes in your scent crusher bag and everything's clean, but you're just you know, Frank might have been grinding concrete walls all day and and covered in dust and you know, who knows what I've been doing. I've either been listening to podcasts or maybe I've been actually working and I'm sweating and everything else. And you just, you know, you just don't, you, you, there's no getting around it. You either don't go hunting or you go hunting in the, in the conditions that you have. And when you do that, that's fine, but you just cannot hunt when the wind's wrong. And sometimes that just totally, you know, it cuts your percentage of seeing a big deer way down or seeing him close to where he wanted to because the wind's not blowing towards him. And when we're stinky like that coming straight from work, we tend to get way out on the edge. And, and we've got a lot of good stands that have great access that we can hunt. You know, the older we've got and the, we've had kids, we've, we're, all work, we're working all the time. We have less and less time every year. And so we've got to maximize the time we can get in the tree. And, so, you know, where it used to be we wouldn't go hunting if we only had an hour and a half. Now we'll go, so we've got spots with better access. It's easy to get into, and you just, you know, you can't kill one if you're not in the tree. 
Yeah. We just got a, we got a listener submitted question not too long ago. Um, actually asking about this very thing. They said, you know, for someone who's working 50, 60 hours a week, how can you maximize your hunting time? Whether that be the amount of time or make the most of the limited amount of hunting time that you have. sounds like you guys are in that kind of situation. Um, Clinton, how do you guys, you know, how have you guys been able to transition now with families and kids and work and everything? How do you make the most of the time you do have? Well, we, you know, we, first of all, we try to hunt when it's right. You know, it, it used to be, we felt a lot, or I, I felt a lot of pressure filming to, you know, do good. And, and we're always trying to kill deer. So we're going a lot and, you know, going a lot is not the answer. A lot of times the hunting, the, you know, hunting fewer times a year is probably better because you're not alerting as many deer. But, the, but the thing that we did or that I have out at the house, um, you know, we've got it set up on a lot of edges and food plots that have great access and other farms are that way too. So even if we only have an hour and a half and it's right, we've got spots that we can slide into, excuse me, where maybe it's not the greatest chance you're going to kill one, but you're still there and it could happen and you're not going to booger it up too bad being in there. I mean, that, we've got a couple stands over at my mother and father-in-law that you could literally hunt. I, I mean, I'm not telling you you could hunt them every night. But if there's a south wind, you can get in and out of there. And unless they're right underneath of you when it's dark, they never know you're there. And and it's just a good spot. I feel like if a guy's trying to hunt and doesn't have time, you, you, you know you can't not go. So you gotta you gotta try to find ways to hunt the edges and find ways where you have great access that you're not blowing any deer out. Because say you're coming, say you can park your truck down on a gravel road and you're coming up a draw to the field, right? And maybe you're not in a spot where the deer bed, so you're not going to blow anything out and getting in there. And if you slide up to the field and get up on your sticks to climb up your tree and there's a bunch of deer close out in the field, drop back down and, and go back to the truck. You know, or you can slide up there and, hey, it's a half hour before it's dark, nothing's out there. I'm going to jump in here real quick, and five minutes later you kill a good one, you know. You just, you, you got to go. You know, we're not all professional hunters and have a lot of time. And that's just, you know, I feel like you can't kill one if you're not in the tree and you just got to make everything to your advantage where you can get there quickly and efficiently as you can. Do do you actually think about that when you guys are setting up stands in the off season or in the past? Like, Hey, we have to have a certain number of stands set up for those last minute hunts. I, I've got about, I mean, all, all the stands on my, at my, at my house that are on the food plots are set up for last minute hunts. I mean, you don't have to have, you, you are coming in high where the deer can't see you and, and you can get there quickly. I mean, if I take the kids, I, I take my kids 45 minutes before it gets dark. Yeah. And I'll drive the truck. If there's deer there, I'll drive the truck back and run them off first and then we'll go back. It's a great idea for, especially for guys, you know, trying to get in a few extra hunts, you know, in the evenings after work, just to specifically make sure you've got a spot or two that's low impact. So like you said, I mean, it's always this line we're walking between, you know, you can't kill one if you're, if you're not out there, but then to your point earlier, and we always talk about this too, you know, if you're hunting at the wrong times too much, then you pressure them. So it's like, how do you make sure you put yourself in a position to still have opportunities, but not screw it up. And this seems like a great way to do it to, you know, specifically plan for having a couple of these spots that are low impact, easy to get into, even if it's, you know, later in the morning or later in the evening. Um, I don't know. I like that. Frank, do, would you would you say there's anything else as far as, you know, making the most of limited time or maximizing your hunting time that you would offer? No, I mean, it's just, you've got, like I said, you got to hunt, 
and I, I mean, like a lot of our spots where we have, where we can slide into a stand. I mean, we're only parking. We have a spots. So you got to have spots to park your truck. That's another plate thing that we deer do react to. If you know, if your truck's sitting on the side of the road, ninety times, no, no, nine out of the ten times when a deer comes out and sees your truck, a lot of times they go back in. So we have like we only even we got areas where little low spots that we park our trucks, and you know, you might only have to go sixty or seventy or eighty yards to get up in a tree, but you know, the deer is no way the deer can see your truck. That is, I mean, we have a lot of spots at Clint's house that we park our truck within, you know, 100 yards of the tree. Hmm. Speaking of, uh, yeah, it, you know, you got to use all that stuff to your advantage. You know, parking, parking in low spots, parking in the ditches on the side of the road. You know, the stuff you got to look for. You know, when you're out scouting, you know, where can I park? Where can I get in here? You know, especially if you've got kids or like Frank likes to take his grandpa you know, so you can get them back there close and either drop them off or park within a hundred yards. And, you know, you just got to think about that and set your farm up because a lot of people think, man, I got to get this food plot stuck, put it down in here and it's going to be great. And, and yeah, it might be if you're, if you're Mark and Terry and you can go hunt it when it's the very perfect day to get in there. But for us, you know, you, we're more guys sit on the outside looking in, trying to get the deer to come out. And, and it's, you know, it's very efficient if you can park your truck somewhere, A, where they can't see it, and B, it's close to where you're going. Because you can always run them, deer get run off with a truck every time somebody drives down a gravel road. So they're not, you know, you blow one out with a truck, you know, go get in the tree, they might come back out in 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, you just never know. Do you guys do anything other than, other than setups like this? Do you do anything to create better access routes? I mean, do you make trails or cut areas out or use any specific type of terrain to, to access places just to limit that impact specifically? Clinton? Yeah. Yeah. Most of our stuff is in ditches. We, we access, uh, through ditches or up the creeks. We got them cut low spots. You know, I've got most of the stuff trimmed out over here at the house. And then I go, we've got some logging road access here up at, uh, up at our my mother and father-in-law's we got great access coming in underneath all the deer always in the in the bottom and it's got a bunch of that russian olive mulberry i don't know what it is it's it's you just thicker and crap and we got trails cut through it and it's it's great cover for sliding the tree um but yeah we always try to have good access when we're coming in underneath in the creek and and undetected yeah you talked a little bit about um scouting for you know spots like that where you can park your truck easily and stuff like that other than trail cameras how much scouting do you guys actually do and i mean are you is it all postseason scouting or is it in-season scouting and what kind of stuff are you looking for frank maybe take that first um we do a lot i mean i do a lot of scouting i i'm i like i hunt everything so i i squirrel hunt a lot and it starts in august so a lot of times when i'm squirrel hunting i uh, i i look for you know the white oak trees that are uh, that are they have a lot of nuts on them and just the little things. Uh, we try to find a lot of pinch points. Uh, I like hunting pinch points a lot, but like that's pretty much what I do. A lot of my scouting is is you know in August, and when I'm squirrel hunting a lot, I I I just love just just keep track of what what trees are producing nuts that year. I mean, like the last couple of years, the white oaks haven't really been been that really that good for us. Um, but there's been a lot of little red oaks and pin oaks that were dropping along the edge of fields and stuff. So that's kind of what I do. I, I love me and my dad squirrel hunt have since I was a little kid. So 
we kind of still do that. And then I just kind of keep track of, Oh, what, what trees are producing that year? Cause not every, you know, not every year a, a tree will produce nuts. Would you add anything on that, Clint? Well, I just, I keep more of a, uh, you know, out here at the house, you can all be more of a scheduled approach of, I guess, when the deer have showed up from the year before. Um, you know, a lot of our deer late season, um, depending on the crop rotations and that stuff, they're back. You know, right now we're, we are kind of learning the farm again at the house because we logged the whole thing and we cut 600 trees off of the farm and, and it has made it an, an absolute debacle. <laughs> to say the least it's bad it's it, it's it's bad enough that frankie won't shed hunt some of it and he would quit deer hunting if he had to choose between shed hunting and deer hunting and <laughs> wow. there it, it is just a it is a mess in there so we're we are trying to have to re we are relearning that aspect of it and you know like right now is a great time to where you can see to be able to check it out but, but a lot of my, a lot of our scouting it seems like anymore um, you know, we, we, we just go on the past season, you know, on, on certain deer. Now you will have new deer show up, but since EHD, we haven't had a lot of new deer show up. Um, but, but we have had some, but, but most of the scouting is past years trail cameras on my part. All right. So I think this is a good place to take a quick break for a word from a couple of our partners. And as I mentioned briefly last week, Whitetail Properties has recently come on board as a supporter of the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today and on future episodes, we'll be hearing from a selection of their land specialists, you know, guys that are super serious whitetail hunters and land managers. And they're going to be sharing quick tips in regards to hunting, habitat, management, and land. And so today, Wired to Hunt producer Spencer Newharth touched base with Whitetail Properties land specialist Jake Elinger to kick us off. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Jake Elinger, a land specialist out of southeastern Michigan. And Jake is going to be telling us about what are some of the common mistakes people make when looking to improve habitat. Probably one of the biggest problems I see is people don't develop a plan first. What they do is they just, you know, take off and they plan a food plot here and hang one or two stands. They don't consider um, where they're parking their vehicle how they're entering and exiting that property so that they can safely get in and then also leave without constantly uh, bumping deer. So that's probably one of the biggest mistakes I see because, you know, some properties you can only access from one section. Other properties you might set on a corner where you have a south road and a east road, so you've got two different areas to park. So putting that in consideration is really important for your long range success. If you'd like to learn more and to see properties that Jake currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Elinger. That's E-H-L-I-N-G-E-R. And finally, we also have an exciting update from our partners at Huntera Maps who have just launched their first digital map offering, the Huntera Mobile Map. Here's Huntera founder Ben Harshine with a quick scoop on their new mobile map offering. Well, new for 2017 from Huntera. Uh, we're excited to announce we're coming out with what we call the Huntera mobile map. And essentially what it is is the classic 3D aerial terrain view that we call the Terra image that our printed maps are known for uh, now loaded onto your mobile device, whether it's a phone or, or uh, 4G tablet. And I would say that 
right now with the maps that you can consume on your phone, pick any Google Maps or, or any of the, these other mapping applications that are out there, they're all showing you the same flat satellite imagery that is only giving you one part of the story. Where Hunterra is really prevailing is uh, giving you a blatant understanding of the elevation change as well. So, I mean, as it's been discussed on Wired to Hunt a zillion times, terrain is is, is just as important uh, in understanding how wildlife is moving throughout the property uh, as cover. We've pioneered the blending of imagery and 3D terrain into this image we call the Terra image. On top of that, we can put your property line. We can put topo lines, which is really the uh, the most popular layer to put on the maps to understand uh, topography and elevation change. Uh, we can put other features like trails, gates, food plots, um, sanctuary, entry and exit routes, really any anything that tells your story of that property, we can overlay that on the map as well. To learn more or to customize and order your own Hunterra mobile map, visit Hunterra.com. And from now through April 20th, 2017, Wired Hunt listeners can get 10% off their order and a free mobile map with every printed map order by using the code WIRED. That's W-I-R-E-D. That's 10% off your order and a free mobile map by using the promo code WIRED. And with that, we will now get back to the show. Speaking of, uh, you, you talked about something there a second ago, um, changing crop rotation. And it just made me think of a question I always ask myself, which is, you know, most a lot of these farms in the Midwest and really a lot of places across the country, they're usually, if there's crops on it, they're rotating between corn and beans, corn and beans, back and forth every year. Um, have you guys ever found that one or the other is better? Do you think that the bean years are better than the corn years or vice versa? Clint, have you seen that? I, I, I think the corn years are always better. Like this year, we struggled late season because our neighbor's farm was was all corn on his side, all corn stocks, and now next year it will all be bean stocks, and this side of the farm will be on fire. Um, knock on wood, I shouldn't say that and try to predict anything, but it is a, a very, you know, this year didn't get very cold, so the deer weren't in the standing soybeans. But next year we will have all the, so they were they were in the just corn stocks and out grazing, you know what I mean? And now next year we'll have all the corn stocks on our side of the farm. Plus, we'll have our standing food plots on the other side of the farm that my neighbors own. They will; it will be all bean stalks and a little bit of corn. So we will have a lot more deer. Yeah. Um, it seems like our later season hunting is a lot better on those years. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of what I've seen too. Um, especially even well, I guess I don't know what you guys think about this, but there's always that other dilemma of on the corn years when you have standing corn. You know, is that a help or hindrance too? Because you worry there's all those deer in there. And I've got a farm I hunt that is really open. And so when when there's not corn out there, there's just hardly any cover, so they're not they doesn't hold a lot of deer. When there is standing corn, it holds a lot of deer, and they kind of come in and out of the corn. So it's usually a good thing. But once it comes out, then you just lose so many deer. Um, how do you guys handle the standing corn? Do you is that a good thing or a bad thing for you guys, Frank? Um, I I I like the standing corn to a to a point. You know, early early in the year, I really like it because, like you said, it's it's easy to get into. Um, makes you where you can get into your get into your stands a little bit easier. We go a lot of times. I'll go and I'll uh, take a you know, machete and trim trim a path down through the cornfield to where we can. You know, you I might have to walk a long ways, but yeah, it's a pretty pretty good walk into into your stands. 
Um, but I mean, just like we were talking just a minute ago, you asked Clint that question about crop rotation. It crop rotation now is so much of a point that we we look at because, truthfully, the farmers now have had their harvest is so early that they work everything. So if you have, you might still have a cornfield, but yet it's worked, and then you have one neighbor that didn't work any of it, you know, didn't have the hell all the stocks and did not work anything, and seems like the deer are, you know, they they go around the stock. That's just if we had Clinton's field this year that they the first time they worked it in a long time, and I think it made a big difference, big difference in the deer we saw there. So you're saying they they right. they chisel plowed it afterwards? You say you're, you're saying they worked it, and so then they're going to places where it hasn't been plowed under? Is that what you're saying? I would say 90% of the cornfield uh, around where we're at or where we hunt around here got work this year in October. Wow. Yeah, that changes things. Or clover and chicory or clover and chicory and alfalfa mix because I can control that and I can mow it when the kids aren't home, um, just whatever throughout the summer and take care of it. So, but, but we depend a lot on that early season green food source. We've had tremendous luck with it with the oats and rye and the radish and turnips. Hopefully the clover and stuff will turn out the same. I'm sure it will. Um, but our late season revolves most around the beans. Um, but it seems like our weather patterns have changed so much because it used to get really cold and the beans were the ticket, man. I mean, you just couldn't beat them. It was the, it was the cat's meow. We, you couldn't, you couldn't plant enough beans. And now like this year, it doesn't get cold. And if you had standing corn, you know, we're allowed to, we're allowed to knock some of it down here in Illinois. If you want, you can do what you want with it, but the deer will always eat corn. They'll always eat it. And they don't want to eat those beans unless it's like crazy cold. Did you guys see the deer hitting green food sources later in December differently than usual because of those, that warmer than usual temperature? I've heard that from a number of people that stuff that usually you wouldn't expect them to be on in December, they were because of those warmer temperatures. Go ahead. Yeah, the brows, the brows were more than anything that I, that I seen this year. You would have deer like would come out into the food or out into a cornfield and then they go right back in and then they just be in the timber. Uh, just browsing on, you know, anything that they could, they wanted to eat. I mean, uh, it was really, really weird deer. Like the deer just, they just didn't have to to search for food. They were, they could pretty much just go wherever they wanted and eat whatever they wanted. They didn't, there wasn't a really a, a late season pattern. I mean, there was, you might see 10 one night and the next night you might see 25. It was just, it was weird. Did you see something different, Clinton, or basically the same type of situation? Basically the same. I mean, I mean the the grass. You know, heck, there was still green grass in the woods in in January. You know, on on south facing hillsides or in the pastures, and the deer. You know that when they're pressured that much, you know they've been through a whole hunting season. You know, you know there's a lot of people that hunt around here, and when they've when every deer has been pressured by human at, at some time they don't want to get out if they don't have to. And that's the key to the late season food plots. When it gets so cold that they got to eat, man, we're in the ball, we're in the money. I mean, we have great, great late season hunts. And we had some good ones this year. Just we never had the, the target deer we were after come out and that we passed up some really nice deer. I mean, Frank passed up a 149 inch eight point and I passed, we found both, both sides to him. So we know he scores. I passed up 150 inch 10 pointer found wow. both sides to him. Um, just so, so we had a, a, a good late season, just not to the caliber of late season hunting that we're used to. And that's because of the weather and all the browse in the woods. Cause if they don't, 
they, they never even ate the beans. Like I dissed them under and there was, I've never in my lifetime of planting food plots in 10 years ever had soybeans left ever. And this year I, I would say there was at least 75% of the crop that I planted was still there. And that was, and and I've never, ever seen it have any. And it was because all the browse and the deer just wanted to spread out. I mean, they never really even grouped up. You know, they just kind of stayed just doing whatever, eating twigs, browsing on corn, eating grass, it seemed like to me. Yeah. So, so how did that change your, how did that change your late season strategy? Because I feel like for me and a lot of people, right, you always think that, you know, when it comes to late season, I'm going to be careful about what I hunt. I'm just going to wait and hunt those you know, those great cold days where there's the snow or the frigid temperatures and they're going to come flocking into my great late season food. I mean, that's like your stereotypical perfect late season setup. But what happens on a year like this maybe where you don't get that, where it's December 15th through the end of December and it's just warm and balmy? I mean, what do you do during that situation? Do you just go to your typical late season food and hope it works out? Or what do you guys do there? Well, you got to have a diverse food plot. You know, a lot of our bigger food plots we've got green and grain in the same food plot so you can you you know you can be on the deer even when it's warm but like here at the house we're 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 not set up like that uh in the same spot so you know one of the spots we usually have tremendous success in it's just straight standing beans and the deer didn't come to them at all so we just we, we tried to hunt them because it's ingrained in our head that that's where we need to go but we just didn't have any success there. Um, so we just had to pull off of them and start hunting some of that green, green food sources, even though, you know, necessarily it might not have been a deer there that we wanted to shoot, but at least we were still going hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, weird weather. It'll be interesting to see if, uh, if things get back to normal this coming year. But, um, did you guys see shed hunting impacted by this warm winter? Because for me and a lot of people, I feel like it's been a rough shed hunting year and I've kind of, pointed the finger at this really mild balmy winter frank have you guys you seen that too yeah i mean there's a lot of deer i mean even right now there's still deer holding horns uh which is really really crazy um i mean i've had a decent year but i've probably went more than than, than the average person um i get off work at at 2 30 so i i probably go three or four nights a week you know work, walk for four or five miles um but i mean i've, I've found 32 so far but nice. I've not found, I've not found any big, big horns. I've found one off of like a, maybe a 140 and then all the rest are smaller. Uh, my wife did find a nice set one night. I took her, um, but truthfully, I think a lot of the, the deer, they're just so spread out that, that you just got to put a lot of miles on. I mean, I, none of them, I usually have a good you know spot that I always find, you know, you find two or three or four or five in a, in an area about every year, you know, and nothing like that this year. They were just, you find one here and one there and just every, they're just spread out for a long way. Yeah. That's kind of what I've been hearing. What about you, Clinton? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I leave the shed hunt almost exclusively up to Frank cause I get shooting snow <laughs> geese and then I, and I just forget about everything. Snow geese is my, is that, you know, that's my thing. Like Frank likes shed hunting. I love snow goose hunting, but I, I did take the wife and the kids one day up, just pick up cameras. And I found, or we found, uh, six, um, just out of the, almost all five of them out of the minivan, wow. um, driving in a grass, a grass road to get the camera. Um, and they were on the green grass. And then 
um, I was like, man, look at all these sheds. This is, this is awesome. We're just going to tear them up. So I called Frank and we walked the whole farm that afternoon out here at the house. We found it too, which was a set off the deer that Frankie had passed up and they were laying out in the middle of the cornfield. So it, it just, with the guys that I've talked to and with Frank and, and some of our other buddies have said, it, it's just very, very sporadic. And there is still, I mean, as of last week, um, one of the guys that hunts here close to the house checked his camera last week and he had eight bucks um, that were still holding both sides. And he said they were between 110 and 150 inch deer, all of them. Jeez. So it's, it's, it's just, you know, I don't have any cameras out because unfortunately I have to pick all my stuff up because people get sliding around and, and you lose them. Um, so I don't have any cameras out for any type of inventory to see what's there. Um, but you know, a lot of people have still been seeing bucks with both sides. Yeah, I actually just saw one on both sides today. Um, it was a young deer, but um, but still, I was just about April. They're still they're still clinging on, so it's crazy. I can remember one year I was with Josh. Frank might have been with us. We were at, we were over by his farm where Josh killed that 191 inch uh, ten point, and we had a big eight pointer come out, and it was the first week of turkey season. Jeez. It was like the 15th of April, and he, he ran across the road right in front of us there. Yep, and he had a snow white rack. Yep, <laughs> bright white. That's crazy. So That was a long time ago. <laughs> so you get, speaking of a long time ago, you guys have been hunting together a long time, and I'm sure you've gotten to know each other pretty well and all of your, your kind of good things and bad things. Frank, what would you say makes Clinton a good hunter? What about Clinton makes him a good hunter? He's really, really picky. He's he's the type of person that he 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 wants it to be that like that deer, or he wants it to be. He gets something in his head, and that's what it is. And which I think that makes him a better hunter because it it makes him you know want that that much more. <laughs> I can see that well, Clinton. No, on the other side, what about Frank? What what about Frank makes him a successful hunter? that sometimes he lets me beat him at killing deer because he's beat me at everything my entire life. <laughs> um, Frank is a gut hunter and he's a killer. He just loves it. Frank, Frank absolutely loves it. And the best thing about Frank is that it keeps me loving it. Like he just, sometimes I get too over the top about it. And, and I, and I know that, and especially since, you know, my last year, my daughter passed away. Um, that's a whole other story. But, but after that happened, you know, you just realize that life's more about, you know, Frank and I have been friends for 20 years. Um, and, and, you know, sitting in the tree with somebody every night, you, you know, we know the ins and out of each other. We, you know, you want to sit and tell stories. We can tell you stories about dating the same girls going, anything <laughs> you want to talk about. We, we have been there, done that, you know, and Frank's just a great hunter because he has these gut feelings of this is where we need to go. I don't care what you're saying. I don't care what your high pressure says. I don't care what your low pressure says. I don't care what Mark Gurry said. This is where we're going to go hunting and we're going to have fun when we go. And if we're not going to have fun, screw you. I'm not going no more. <laughs> and we, you know, we keep it in check. We, he always makes us make sure we're having a good time. And, and normally that gut feeling, I mean, we are always on deer when we go. Speaking of, um, Speaking of what makes you guys good hunters, I know that you guys have a lot of other friends who are really good hunters too. Um, what if you had to pick some type of quality 
in most of the people you know that are just great deer hunters? What would that quality, that consistent thing be that most really good deer hunters that you know have all in common? Uh, Clinton, if you want to take that first. Um, I'm going to say just the management aspect of getting it set in their mind that we are not going to shoot young deer. Um, and, and we're, we're only going to shoot the mature deer that we're after or, or just the mature deer that shows up on the farm. I mean, everybody is better at something than it. we all, we all hunt different. I hunt different than Frank. Frank's not different than me. You know, Josh hunts different than Frank and I hunt. Josh does stuff all the time that Frank and I's like, gosh, why does he do that? He's so sloppy and, and why is that even working? And, and Rector hunts different than, than Frank and I. And I just think that the, the common thing is that you just, everybody's got a goal and the guys that are consistently good deer hunters stick, stick to the deer management and the goal that they're after. What do you think, Frank? Um, you know, with friends, I mean, that's just, I probably wouldn't have anything if I didn't have my friends. You know, Josh and Clint have been like my brothers since I moved here. I mean, I moved here when I was a freshman in high school. And, uh, you know, that I think that is, we, we try to better ourselves. I mean, we all try to, we all talk like every day or every other day during hunting season. Everybody's like, you know, just telling, telling stories, what they saw, what they, you know, what they, what's going on. And I think that is, I mean, Everybody that we hunt with, we all communicate. We all know, you know, it's, that's, I think that's what makes everybody a better hunter that, that we are friends with is we all, we have Intel because we all hunt around the same areas and we all, we all communicate. And just like with our neighbors, we have neighbor, Clint's neighbor, we, we keep in touch with him. We, we, you know, ask them what they're seeing. They ask us what what we're seeing. I think that's, uh, it's getting to be the quality management of, everybody getting together i mean it's not so much you have one neighbor that you you know you kind of like oh he'll shoot anything it's getting to be where everybody is kind of sticking to the same game and truthfully in illinois that's what you need yeah that's that's a really nice situation when you have that it seems like even like when you're looking for a new property you know a lease or to buy land or something it's like if you can find good neighbors no matter what your property is like, lots of times you're going to be in for a lot better experience. If you're in a neighborhood with people that have similar goals and, you know, that, you know, want to communicate and and enjoy things together, that that's a situation that you just always want to find if possible. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, it it is, I mean, it's, that's a hundred percent and the nail on the head are, are, we have absolutely great neighbors. I mean, our neighbor drew owns borders, our farm all the way up and he's got, 10 or 12 guys that come down and hunt and we go over there and drink beer with them and hang out. And, and, you know, Drew's rule is, I, I believe his rule is if you shoot one, you have to get it mounted, right? That's a great rule. Cause then, then you have younger guys that if a two and a half year old deer comes out and, and that's the biggest deer they ever seen, they shoot it, right? Good for them. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a great aspect of deer hunting. That's part of getting older and, and maturing. And when, when you get good people around and people that you can enjoy it with, it it just makes hunting fun and unfortunately a lot of times the outdoor industry we have gotten away from hunting being fun yeah very true very true speaking of fun though clinton what's the most embarrassing hunting related story you can tell me about frank (laughs) the most embarrassing hunting related story boy i do not know He's never done anything. I don't know what he. 
we've we get marked that's like 20 years of hunting together three days a week <laughs> i mean i can tell you a lot of stories that we're not going to be allowed to play on the podcast <laughs> that frankie and i've done together but i'm not sure hunting related any big mistakes hmm. he's made any big screw-ups well, I mean, he did. I, I, I will. Here's one I'll tell you. So Frank hates self-filming, okay? And sometimes, like we talked earlier, it gets frustrating when you know you should go, but you can't get off work, right? And normally, Frank can't get off work, and I can always get off work. But every once in a while, I get hung up, and I can't. So I always make sure in those situations, I make sure I stay because we do not want to compromise the great situations we have going so this year, Frank, Frank, and he was on these deer over to the grandpa's like we talked early season. They're there in the summer and Frank was going and I could not get off work. So Frank goes in and he's got the decoy and he, he wants to go decoy these deer because he, know, he knows they're in his draws. And on the way in, he gets out of the truck and walks. I, I, I'm not even sure. It was not very far and sees the deer bedded down with some does. And he like man what what do i do so somehow which this is not typical frank he comes up with the plan of i'm going to set the deer the decoy up and now i'm not only going to set the decoy up this deer's bedded 30, 50 yards from me i'm going to put my camera in the deer's antlers <laughs> so he gets this camera out and sticks it in the antlers of the decoy zooms in on the deer it is in perfect focus I mean, it's beautiful. It's framed perfectly. He gets down on his hands and knees, crawls out in front of the, in, in front of the decoy. So the decoy's up on the floor, rising in the field. Now Frank's behind the brush, crawling towards this bedded buck in the oak timber, right? And he can't see him because of this brush. He gets 25 yards from him. The wind's blowing. The deer has no idea there. He will not get up. Frank is throwing stuff at him, throwing walnuts at him, all on video. It is just beautiful. I mean, beautiful footage. The deer stands up, and Frank, the deer ducked his arrow, dropped Uh, 18 inches. Frank (laughs) skipped it off the top of his back. And we didn't put it on the web show because we had a bunch of other stuff that week. But it was, it was, I'm not saying that's embarrassing, but that is, the the footage is phenomenally, it's just such a different perspective of anything that you've ever seen. And Frank would never think of shoving the camera in the deer's horns because frank would have thought i'm going to shove the camera in the backpack and i'm going to go shoot this deer and we'll shoot another one later on it it crossed my mind many times (laughs) (laughs) wow that would have been awesome yeah it was pretty uh pretty intense yeah i bet so so frank do you have a story about clinton um i I mean not really i mean we've had a lot of uh A lot of arguments in the tree. A lot of me just, uh, you know, not paying attention to him. But the funniest thing is, the embarrassing is when his wife calls him in the tree. He he'll be like sitting there and his phone will ring and he'll be like, "Hello." <laughs> He's trying to be all quiet, talking to his wife in the tree. And most of the time, I try to video it or just just I'm like shake my head at him. But that's pretty much. It. I think it embarrasses him a little bit that. He has to answer the phone when his wife calls him. <laughs> right. Can't miss yeah. those calls, huh? It, 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 well, sometimes it becomes a problem. I would say the 
the the one of the most embarrassing moments um besides when I shot Ernie in the shot him twice and didn't kill him in nine days, but besides that, um the very first year that we were filming for White Knuckle, we had one of those days where we had the first hot doe come in and and it was it was incredible. We had that was back when we had a lot of big gear, you know, before EHD back in the early two thousands. And and there was just a lot of a lot of big deer, and we had this deer we were hunting, and he come in, and it was the first time that we were going to get it done, and be all jacked up about it. And I shot him right in the freaking neck. Oof. And that was that was very deflating on our our filming thing. And then we had three more walk by big deer after the deer that I shot in the neck. And we didn't shoot any of the other ones because we just weren't, yeah, we just didn't know, you know, we, we were just like, Hey, we're out here at this camera. We're trying to film, you know, we're going to be somebody someday. This is what we're doing. And then I whack him in the neck. All I can remember is Frank breathing over my shoulder in that freaking camera. And I just lost it. <laughs> Frank's definitely better. Frank's definitely a little better under pressure uh, a lot of times than I am for sure. Do you have any uh, anything, Frank, that's helped you get better at handling that moment of truth? Anything that's you know that you might be able to pass on to other people that maybe struggle in that moment? Um, I think the more you do it, the more I think truthfully, I shoot. I like shooting does. The more the, if I can get a kill a couple does the first week of October, that does wonders for 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 me on pressure on like just it just takes the edge off with like to settle your pin to to do everything i think that's a big key to me like this year i didn't get to kill any does early and i think truthfully it was in my head a little bit because i didn't hadn't killed a deer before i shot my buck i i think definitely shooting a couple does or just just you know relieve like that just relieving stress that's why i think i close says i'm a killer but that's that's what i like i like to I like to kill a few does the first week, just to, just to take the edge off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you are you are a killer. But yeah, that that I, I agree with him 100 percent on that. I mean, we've had you know we've been trying to lay off of them, unfortunately, the last couple of years because of because of the EHD. You know, we're we're just down a little bit. It's starting to get better again. Um, but we've been trying to lay off a little bit. And, and when you're not kicking stuff, it's like hitting a baseball. If you don't go hit a baseball every day, you're going to struggle when you go try to hit baseballs. And when you're shooting deer, if you're not shooting a couple, three or four deer a year, when the moment of truth happens, you know, we all know that there's just so many things that God has to put in front of you for it to happen. That, that if you're not in the right mental state of just knowing that, Hey, I'm going to put this pin behind their shoulder and he's dead, that it's just not going to work. You know, you, and and you don't get to that point without shooting live animals and getting confidence. Yeah, I think that you know these days too. I think this is something that some new hunters struggle with, especially. I think partly you know we're to blame because the hunting media shows so many people out there having success killing these big mature bucks all the time. And I think some new people come into it, young guys or girls, and they they think that oh, I have to hold out for a big one, and so they don't shoot deer 
because they're passing and passing and passing and passing and passing until they get to that big one. And then finally they do have a shot at a mature buck and they've never shot deer before or only one or something like that. And now they completely melt down because they haven't had all that experience shooting does or young bucks or whatever, just to get to that point. You know, I think sometimes that you got to move up that ladder one step at a time. I I agree with you hundred percent on that. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, truthfully, me and Clint can, or Clint and I, you know, how many small bucks have we killed in our life? You know, that's that's the thing is I'm not ever going to say something about a new hunter that goes and shoots, a, you know, a small buck. That is, that's just part of it. That's, you know, it's good for you. It gets, like you said, it does take the edge off. It builds your confidence, and, and, and everybody knows in bow hunting, if you're not, a confident, you're not confident in what you're doing, then you're not going to, I mean, you're going to have stuff go wrong. Yeah. Right. I mean, there, there's nights, you know, but confidence is everything and you cannot build it without killing deer and you're hundred percent right on, you know, what the outdoor industry has done because social media and everything, everybody wants to show their pictures and everybody wants to see what Mark's doing and what Clinton doing. What's all Frank did this. And, you know, we see it around here, you know, we got, you know, there's a lot of younger guys around here that we know and, and we go on blood trails with them. We go help people out and we do whatever. And, and you know, Hey, shoot, shoot a little buck. If you ain't shot here for shoot, whatever walks in front of you. I mean, that's why we're deer hunting because you, 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 you can't let the, the pressure of what everybody else thinks or what you think everybody else thinks affect, you know, what you are, what your definition of hunting is to yourself. I mean, that's just like with Frank and I hunting. I, I have a different, sometimes I have a different idea of what I'm going to shoot as compared to what Frank's going to shoot. Frank wants to shoot these deer and maybe I don't want to shoot those, but that's not, that's Frank's definition of hunting to him. And it's not my definition of what I am to me. And it's okay. You know, it's okay for everybody to shoot whatever they want to, because it's fun. Because the fun part is we're going to go shoot the deer. Then we're going to go get the deer with all of our buddies. And then we're going to go back in the shed and drink beer and tell him, hey, boy, that would have been a hell of a nice year next year if you'd let him go for a year because it's fun to give your buddies crap and have a good time. And that's what – and, and you know, that's, that's like I said earlier about Frank's good qualities, that I was getting away from that. And fortunately, he's always been there. You know, Frank's had to go through a lot with me with my daughter passing away. And and just, you know, you can imagine that's just a rough time and, and you know, getting a lot of emotional not having feelings and being a raging – butthead sometimes about that and, and different stuff going on and, and dragging you back into, Hey, you know, sometimes you just have to kill stuff because killing stuff is fun. You know, it, it is fun. That's why we do it. You know, that's why God put animals on the earth for us to shoot them. That's why we do it. <laughs> yeah. Gotta, gotta let, gotta get back to having fun with hunting. To your point, I'm, I'm sometimes guilty of that too. I get so worked up. I get so caught up in the the process and trying to get this one deer or whatever, and it's easy to to all of a sudden find yourself, you know, days and days into a hunting trip or something, and realize that every day you're just stressing out and frustrated, and you know why the heck am I why the heck am I feeling this way? This is supposed to be fun. This is fun, but I'm not letting myself have fun with it because I'm worried so much or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and when you're having fun, good things happen. True. Very true. Well. I think that's a perfect place to uh, to wrap this one up because I think that's like just some of the the wisest words I think all of us serious deer hunters can hear um, because when it comes right down to it, that's what it's all about. So, 
Guys, if, exactly. if the listeners want to see some of your hunts, um, where can they go online to find that stuff, Clinton? Uh, they go to bowhunting.com, and you can click on the uh, website and get on Bowhunter Diets on the tab on the top. And you can uh, watch us there on bowling.com. You can watch us on YouTube or on your Roku. Awesome. Frank, do you have uh, do you have any recommended episode that you can remember that if people were going to watch just one with you guys that they should make sure to see? Um, I The, the deer that Clint kills, uh, I don't know what episode it was, uh, he kills a, a giant eight-pointer. Uh, comes right in. Uh, was actually a deer that we patterned on with cameras. Uh, comes right in, and I actually had to I had to tell him to stop the deer to shoot it because I thought he was gonna let it run by. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like Mark Dury. I'm not kidding you. He walks out. It was it's season three, right, Frank? Because we killed the ten pointer the first year, and then that was the second year. Yeah, it's season three. Uh, it was a deer we called Snowbird. Um, he he walked out of the grass and was standing in these cedars and it looked like something you'd see in Iowa watching all the jury videos growing up. And, and I was in such an daze that he walked by at five yards and we had designed all the stuff that we'd learned about watching jury videos for that to happen. And it happened and he walked by right in front of me and Frank's like, dude, stop him. I can still remember him telling me, stop him. And I stopped him for shy me, scored 173 inches. Holy smokes. That's awesome. Well, uh, but it's season three. I can't remember exactly what episode. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to find that one and link it in the blog post for this episode. So if anyone wants to go up and watch that, you'll be able to find it, uh, on where to hunt. So Clinton, Frank, thank you guys so much for joining me for this. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, Mark. Thanks Mark. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And good luck this season. Yep. You too. You too, buddy. And with that, we will shut this episode down. Before we go, though, big thanks to our partners for keeping this podcast on the air. Their support really is instrumental in making this whole thing happen. So if you happen at the time, let these guys know that you appreciate them supporting the Wiretime Podcast and check out their offerings. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Ozonic, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Carbon Express, and Huntera Maps. And finally, thank you all for listening. Best of luck with whatever deer-related projects you might be working on at the moment. And finally, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.